Welcome back to the Future of the UK Constitution um, Conference. In this panel, we will discuss what will the next general election mean for the UK Constitution. If you're just joining us, I'm Jess Sargent, Associate Director at the Institute for Government. If you've been here all day, sorry, it's me again. Um, I, I promise this is my last one. Um, uh, joining us now, uh, we have an in-house panel um, of experts from the Institute for Government um, and formerly of the Bennett Institute who've all made excellent contributions to the review thus far. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is what the general election will mean for the UK constitution. As the House of Commons breaks for conference recess, political parties will be looking forward to their policies at the next election. So what constitutional proposals might appear in each party's manifesto? How might each party approach working with Parliament, the civil service, the devolved and local governments? And what happens if no one wins a majority? To discuss this all, I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Haddon, Programme Director um, for the IFG Academy at the Institute for Government and expert on ministers, the constitution and government. Uh, Dr. Alice Lilly is a senior researcher at the Institute for Government and master of all things parliamentary. Uh, Jack Newman is a research associate at the Productivity Institute at the University of Manchester. And prior to that, Jack was a research associate at the Bennett Institute working on the review and is co-author of our paper on government in England. And Akash Pound is programme director at the Institute for Government, leading the IFG's devolution programme. Just a reminder, we will be live tweeting this. Um, you can follow along using the hashtag IFG Bennett Institute. Um, and please do ask audience questions over Slido. Let's start with the manifestos. Kath, what can we expect to be in parties' manifestos on the Constitution? Is it likely to feature heavily? Uh, very good question. It's what we expect to be about a year out. Uh, there's a few signs, but not that. Uh, not that much clarity at the moment. I think there's two important contexts for this. The first thing is we are heading into a general election season. We're already really into the campaigns. We're likely to see a whole year of campaigning, exhaustion already. Um, but there's a lot to play for. We know that. We know the political stakes are incredibly high for the country and for the two main political parties, for all political parties. Um, what that means is we're likely to see more issues becoming very polarised, uh, to becoming a very uncomfortable debate. We're less likely to see more parties coming together and consensus on issues. Uh, and I think that's really important for the Constitution because it opens up the question of, does it become something, Mike Kenny talked this morning about weaponising, uh, does it become something that actually parties are using to attack each other. Uh, for Labour, obviously, standards and integrity has been a big issue, uh, a big part of their attack in the last year, uh, understandably. Um, and they have talked about having an integrity and ethics commission, uh, but that was really championed by Angela Rayner. She's now moved from the Cabinet Office over to the Department for Leveling Up. So it's unclear whether or not they'll go ahead with that, but it's pretty clear that they will include integrity and ethics as a core part of their campaigning over the next year. So I suspect we will continue to see stuff there. Um, the second thing that I think, though, one has to understand is that money is going to be a huge issue, both uh, problems in the economy and the lack of money and also the need that public services have for more money. Uh, and that means that manifesto promises that cost money are going to be something that political parties are really scrutinising very heavily. 
the risk there is that they see constitutional change as something that is easy to promise without committing loads of money compared to, say, shoving yet more billions into this public service or that public service. The reality is, as we know, A, it's not cost-free in money terms, but it's definitely not cost-free in political terms and, as we've discussed, in constitutional terms. So we don't want to see them sort of throwing around ideas that actually haven't been thought through you know, what uh, we've already talked about today, what came up very much in Philip Rycroft's paper about how the Constitution can often be used as, as something like almost a political football to start throwing around. So that doesn't really answer your question, but I hope actually illuminates uh, the question a bit more. The other thing that we can get into talking about is obviously if there is a hung parliament, the two big constitutional questions are around the SNP and around the Liberal Democrats and whether or not that Scottish independence or electoral reform coming into play as, as big constitutional issues. But others can illuminate that, I'm sure. Fantastic, thank you. Um, Jack, we know both the Conservative and Labour uh, parties have plans for greater devolution in England. How similar or different can we expect their proposals or agendas to be? Yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, it's, it's important to say that both parties have made some pretty big statements about devolving power in England. They've both recognised that over-centralisation is driving regional inequality, it's getting in the way of improving productivity, something we're looking at at the Productivity Institute. But then there's a huge gap in both parties between the rhetoric and the reality. With the Conservatives, the levelling up white paper promised to be, quote, the most comprehensive, ambitious plan of its kind the country has ever seen, and promised to root and branch reform of government and governance in the UK. So big words. Has that happened? Well, no, obviously not. Um, the reality is, is um, there has been some reform and there's been some new mayoral deals, some new powers transferred to the mayors, but really levelling up has been an agenda where delivered through competitive funding pots um, and this is widely seen to be a disaster at the local level um, where local government bid for small amounts of money they waste time and resources doing it they're not able to develop long-term strategies for their area they're instead just chasing Westminster's flavour of the month so looking forward to the Conservative manifesto are we likely to see something bold on this Probably not. Rishi Sunak seems to have gone lukewarm on levelling up and what's been delivered so far has been far below what was promised. Um, turning to, to Labour, again, big words from the Labour Party. Gordon Brown's review of the Constitution um, argued that an irreversible shift in prosperity requires something even bigger than his going up, so some one-upmanship in, in the rhetoric. Um, and again, they acknowledge that this is going to require an irreversible shift of power in England. So again, huge promises. Will it be delivered? Obviously much harder to tell. They're not in government. But a couple of things we can look to. Firstly, Starmer did back Gordon Brown's commitments on the Constitution. He was there at the launch. He made a speech. He publicly endorsed them. But we haven't heard much since. And it feels to me that you know when Labour has a policy because you hear about it a million times on the media rounds. See, for example, um, the windfall tax or the non-dom tax status. And we've not, the English devolution issue hasn't had that treatment yet. So maybe uh, not a great deal there. And then there's been the move of Lisa Nandy away from that post. Someone who'd written a book on this area, was all over this brief, and seemed to be developing quite strong policies in this area, has been moved on. Angela Rayner's come in, and it seems a move that's more about optics and party management than it is about really developing a bold agenda on English devolution. So not a great deal of optimism, I'm afraid. But just one final point on this is, is to say that 
if you are interested in, or if your mission is to improve productivity in this country, and you recognise the state has a role in that, but you recognise the state can't spend a load of money doing it, then English devolution seems to be the way to square that circle. A lot of economists are talking about the need for better regional government in England. Um, I'll leave it there. Great, thank you. Um, so Jack's just talked us through some proposals for uh, devolution in England, which I know is also an area of focus for you, Akash. But we expect both parties to also want to make statements about strengthening the union. What can we expect uh, to be in the manifestos on that? Well, I think maybe unlike um, in, in terms of the debate around English devolution, we will hear a bit of a difference, mm -hmm. at least in tone, um, in terms of how... Conservatives and Labour, respectively, might might go about managing the union and relations with um, with the devolved governments. I mean, on the Conservative side, I don't expect to um, see much of a change from the recent strategy that we might still call muscular unionism. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the phrase um, they they necessarily use. Um, to describe it themselves, but you know we know what 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 um, has happened over recent years: an increased willingness of the government to intervene in devolved areas through legislation, through spending powers. Um, you know that that they conferred on themselves through the UK Internal Market Act, um, driven by a calculation that people in communities in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland mm -hmm. don't necessarily care who's spending the money on local infrastructure or local growth products or whatever. Um, and therefore, the niceties of the devolution settlement maybe aren't, aren't, aren't the relevant electoral issue. What's, what's more important from that perspective is to demonstrate the value of the union, the power of the British state. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, in, in a nutshell, I, I kind of expect to see more of the same of that kind of thing. I mean, we're seeing it even today in the, the court case around mm -hmm. um, challenge to the uh, UK government's blocking of the, the gender reform, Scotland's uh, gender reform recognition legislation. So that's a, kind of, a, a different way, mm -hmm. not to do with economic policy, of course, but more to, talk, to do with UK government as guarantor of equal rights as they would see it or, or certain notions of citizenship across the UK. So I think that's roughly where I'd expect the Conservatives to, to be. Um, on the Labour side, I, I, I think it is still um, up for grabs to some extent in terms of exactly where they'll land in terms of manifesto commitments. I mean, I think in terms of the tone, the emphasis is going to be Labour is the party of devolution, the architects of devolution settlements in, in, in the 90s. Um, Labour will want to come in and signal at least a, a change in tone and atmosphere in terms of that intergovernmental relationship. Um, I expect um, you know, a commitment to maybe abide by the, the spirit of the Sewell Convention more um, to, to make a reality of, of cooperation through intergovernmental relations machinery and that kind of thing. I'm not yet sure whether to expect more fundamental change, legislative change. I mean, obviously, we've seen uh, Jack was talking about the Brown recommendations for English devolution. Another big element of, of it, of course, was you know uh, suggestions of how you might entrench and protect mm -hmm. the devolution settlement, specifically by giving a, a reformed upper chamber a role in protecting the constitution and protecting protecting devolution. 
Um, so that could be a big reform if they go down that, that path. I'm not convinced it's going to be a priority for, for Labour, even though Starmer may have been at the launch of the, of the report um, last year. Um, there's other things they might do. I mean, there's, there's ideas certainly going to be coming forward, for example, from, from Wales and the Independent Commission mm. there for um, further devolution to Wales, policing, justice, some transport powers. Um, again, it's not been sort of apparent that Labour at the national level is very enthusiastic about um, further powers um, for, for, for Wales or, or Scotland, but we may see some moves in that direction. Maybe kind of reform, as I say, to, to, to IGR, possibly putting some elements of it onto a statutory footing. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, hopefully we'll find out a bit more over the coming weeks at a party conference, but, but there's definitely some interesting ideas being proposed within the party at the moment. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And I mean, Alice, uh, we've heard a bit already about uh, Gordon Brown's commission, some of their proposals. The big sort of headline of that was around reform of the House of Lords and replacing it with an assembly of nations and regions. Do we expect that that's a proposal that the Labour Party is going to take forward? And do we have any idea about whether there's anything that the Conservative Party might want to do on the House of Lords, given some of the recent scandals around mm. Boris Johnson's resignation honours? I think for both political parties, when you're considering Lord's reform, there are ultimately two kind of big sets of challenges. The first of those is sort of perpetual, and the second of them at the moment is much more situational. So the sort of perpetual challenge facing Labour or the Conservatives or whoever is in government uh, after the next election is that the history of parliamentary reform is generally one that is quite piecemeal and it's often quite slow, or perhaps it's more accurate to say that it's often slow and then all at once, to, to borrow a phrase. We've seen that very particularly with the history of Lord's reform, uh, but we also see it with other kinds of parliamentary reform as well. So think about continued debates over restoration and renewal, which are sort of going nowhere quite slowly. <laughs> so you know, for any new government that's thinking about reform, there would need to be a lot of momentum and willingness to expend fairly significant political capital on undertaking a reform. And that brings us to that second set of challenges, which is the more situational one. So obviously, as you say, we've, we've talked about the kind of Brown Commission and, and some of the um, recommendations that came out of that. But it's worth reflecting on the fact that some of those recommendations were made at a time when the world and particularly the economy looked a bit different. We were in a slightly different place. And so if you put yourselves in the shoes of whoever is in government after the next election, is Lord's reform the thing that you are going to want to expend a lot of your political capital on right up front at the start of a new parliament, given where we are with the economy, given where we are with global uncertainty, given where we are with the state of, of public services at the moment? And I'm, I'm not sure that that is a calculation that either of the main political parties is going to make. The other thing that I would just add to that set of situational challenges, and I think this is much more of a sort of Westminster point than it is perhaps one that filters into the kind of broader discussion about House of Lords reform, but I think if you speak to a lot of people in actually both houses of the UK Parliament, there is a sense at the moment 
that it is in the House of Lords where Parliament is actually working quite effectively. If you look at a lot of the detailed scrutiny that is being done of legislation, and we, we touched on this in the previous session, a lot of that is actually happening in the House of Lords rather than perhaps in the House of Commons. And so I think that adds an interesting kind of dynamic within Parliament uh, as well to the sort of willingness that there, there might be for reform. So I think certainly watch this space, but it certainly doesn't feel at the moment as though that is where the big kind of momentum is, is going to be post the election. Mm. So we talked a bit about what might, what explicit proposals might be in the party manifestos, but there is also a question of how different governments might approach the constitution more generally. So staying on this theme of, of parliament, we've talked about potential agenda for reform on the House of Lords, but over the last period, because of Brexit and COVID, we've seen certain trends um, in the relationship between government and parliament more broadly because of the exceptional circumstances. We've seen things like legislation being passed very quickly. Um, how do you think an, a, a new government, whether that be um, the Conservative Party elected after the next election or potentially a future Labour government, um, should approach parliament starting at the beginning of a new parliamentary term? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that there has been a decline in the relationship between government and parliament that has taken place under multiple different uh, governments, under different prime ministers. It's taken place under different speakers. It's taken place under kind of different scenarios. And certainly Brexit and COVID have made all of that worse for the reasons you touched on, some of the things that we, we've spoken about earlier today, you know, delays in responses to select committee reports announcements continually being made outside of Parliament, um, expanded use of secondary legislation, quick passage of, of primary legislation, all of these kinds of things. So there's, there's definitely been a kind of declining relationship. And you only need to look at the number of times that the speaker sort of sounds like a angry supply teacher um, reprimanding the government to kind of see that, that that declining relationship is very real. So there is a need for a reset. Um, I think in terms of what that looks like, I think, and the danger is you sound naive when you say this, but I think you <laughs> should say it anyway, what you need is for an incoming government to recognise that Parliament is valuable. It's valuable as a source of challenge and as a source of scrutiny. And obviously for a government, challenge and scrutiny is uncomfortable, but it can also be productive. You know, that is why it exists. And I think it's important to remember that. I think it's also important to remember that um, sort of uh, the ability to bring Parliament with you, again, is something that is very useful. That's not about making you know, everybody in Parliament agree, but at least being able to set out an argument and make a case for something. And again, that's useful. It's a good way of helping you get robust policy through that is more likely to stick and, and to last in the long term. And I think the, the final thing that I would really say in terms of how a new government should approach Parliament is actually a very basic point, but it's remembering the value of um, essentially basic courtesies. So those things like responding to select committee reports in the 60-day period in which government is supposed to do so. It is things like making your announcements to Parliament, ensuring that MPs have the time and ability to scrutinise things. I think that kind of courtesy goes quite a long way, and it's also a way of demonstrating your recognition of the fact that, that Parliament matters.
Can I just add an additional point on that? I mean, partly on that, but also I think the, you know, whoever wins the next election, there is also the opportunity for a reset in how governments treat the constitution. We've been mm. talking about it all day, that a lot of the problems and a lot of the reasons why the protections in your report are there, because we've realized that actually just trusting to good behavior isn't enough anymore. But the political winds have shifted, and it is now in politicians' favor to say, as Rishi Sunak did at the start of his premiership, you know, integrity and honesty is gonna be at the heart of my premiership. People will then judge whether or not that is. Um, but we, you will see that again. You will especially see that if Labour get into government. But there's risks in that. One of the risks is that we then fall back into complacency. We think, well, OK, we've got honest brokers at the heart of government again, or we've got people who are just about all right, and therefore it's OK, the systems. And we, so we, we forget the lessons of the, the last few years about how vulnerable our systems can be when you have people who are willing to push them to the limits or who are willing to use them as political football. The second thing, I think, again, if, if Labour got in and, and didn't get a majority or had a small majority, they're going to want to do change. And it would be very tempting for them to want to use delegated legislation, uh, to want to try and find whatever mechanisms they've got. And again, this goes to the point of why these things have happened over the last years. Yes, there has been an element to which Brexit has just brought a sort of political uh, temperature up to such a high level that, that lots of things were being uh, used to try and win political battles. But it's also about expediency. Uh, our governments, drawn from the legislature, if they've got a majority, have a lot of power. And when you're trying to get stuff done, of course you've got, you know, democratic mandate, you want to get things done you want to use every tool at your disposal. So it is about making the case to them again and again and again, as happened in the last session, about why these things don't actually lead to better policy, about why delegated legislation, why you need pre-legislative scrutiny, why you need to take the time, even if it's a week rather than a day, to scrutinize a bill. Um, and, and that's, I think, a big risk for a Labour government coming in as much as if we see continuation of Conservative government. Yeah. And related to that point of delivering, Kath, um, we've seen some tensions between ministers and civil servants over the last five years. After the, the next election, how do, we, how do you think a new government um, could use, uh, use the civil service as best as it possibly could in order to help deliver that? Or are we likely to see these tensions continue, particularly if we're expecting that, um, or, or if, if the civil service has to pivot to a kind of new and different agenda? Uh, and the pivot point, that's not a problem. Uh, the civil service, what they do well, the reason we have a permanent civil service is the ability to pivot. To pivot if there's a new minister in your department, if there's a new policy, if your policy turns 180, even though the government hasn't changed. Um, the civil service are able to do that, sometimes more effectively than other times. But an incoming Labour government shouldn't at all be concerned as to whether or not uh, Labour would be able to, to pivot to that any more than a continuing Conservative government should feel that uh, the civil service will stop delivering for them or, or anything, even in the run-up to an election. Um, but there are still risks at the heart of this. We do need a reset of that relationship, and it starts before a general election, because at some point in the coming months, uh, the opposition will start what we call access talks, which are pre-election 
opportunities to have meetings with senior civil servants and start talking to them about their policies and ideas. We've looked into these, myself and uh, Peter Riddle, our former director, um, repeatedly over the sort of many years uh, working here and also looking back at multiple general elections. And it is abundantly clear that these meetings aren't important just for being able to share ideas about policy so that you can have a good transition. They're about relationship building. The relationship building that you then depend on in the stress of being in government starts in those access talks. Uh, so it's going to be fundamentally important to both Labour and to the civil service that they get those rights. And they're aware that there can be problems and you can solve them if there are. But there's other things that if there was uh, a new Labour government that they should be concerned about. And one is the signals. We've seen an awful lot go on with the civil service in recent years where it has been difficult for people on the outside to discern what's going on. You've seen permanent secretaries departing. They're always departing because they resigned or they've gone off to another job or something. And it's only from briefing or from talking to people behind the scenes that you worked out who was sacked who was pushed out the door, who had a terrible time. You see briefings against them or whatever. We now know that a lot of those were political manoeuvres against permanent secretaries. So those kind of signals are incredibly important and the civil service will be looking out for them. Will there be briefings against the current cabinet secretary? Will there be briefings that uh, Labour would prefer this person as a cabinet secretary? There's one in the newspapers this morning. That kind of stuff in itself is damaging because it just says to the civil service that we're again going to be at the whim of politicians that they don't understand the institution and the importance of, of leadership. So if Labour were approaching it, they need to show that they want the civil service to be renewed, that they want that healthy relationship, which is sometimes intention, um, to be restored. And they need to show that if, they, if there is going to be a new cabinet secretary at some point, there will be at some point in the future, that they're going to have a proper open process and won't make the mistakes of previous prime ministers by appointing somebody who then loses the, the confidence of the civil service because you lacked that openness, uh, that appointment on merit that is so crucial for the civil service. Thanks, Kath. Um, Akash, I think another relationship that we've seen or relationships that have become increasingly strained are the relationships between the UK government and the, and the devolved governments. How might you see that changing after an election? Um, I suppose it might only be one government that might be changing it at that point or continuing um, as, as it may be. But is this a point where we might see a reset with Brexit and COVID sort of behind us? Yeah, I was going to say, reset seems to be the common theme yes. of, <laughs> of the panel, at least opportunity for reset. I mean, I think there is an opportunity, yes, for an incoming government, whether, you know, re-elected Sunak administration or, or Labour, to, to go about things in a different way. We've had that this period, yes, uh, particularly post-2016, um, of, of fairly poor relationships at political level, at least. Yes, good, op good cooperation goes on at official level. Um, in, in many areas, we should recognise that. But yeah, I think that a, a government formed after the next general election could, if there, if there was the political will to do so, seek to move us towards something more like a, a partnership model of, of intergovernmental relations. You know, we can talk about what that might look like in terms of the formal machinery and so on. It's quite a complex, not necessarily most uh, exciting area in, in many respects. But I think more importantly is 
is what's the underlying vision? You know, is this one? Is is there a relationship that you're trying to build with Edinburgh, Cardiff, and if and when we have ministers in in Belfast potentially there too, based on identifying shared objectives, maybe around net zero, maybe around mm-hmm. economic and industrial strategy leveling up, and so on, transport infrastructure, other things as well, where you recognise that powers are divided in those areas, objectives may be shared, or there's at least some common ground, and then you try and build processes and, and a culture um, that that kind of yeah facilitates cooperation rather than confrontation or, or competition between the governments, which increasingly is what we've seen. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it there. Great, thank you. Um, and Jack, we've seen Metro mayors become increasingly prominent during this, this period with expectations of kind of further devolution. Um, what do you expect that might mean for how the government should be approaching those relationships with, with local government? And just to take a question from online um, in that as well, uh, it's an anonymous question, uh, but the question asks about the fact that um, because uh, only 40% of the population are living in areas with um, combined authorities, does, does that risk that some people might be left behind, both in terms of representation, but also in, in entrenching inequality, is this question asked? Yeah, no, really interesting. I think the question online can be answered with a yes, but I will try and <laughs> develop that a bit more fully in my answer. So I think there's been a lot of cautiousness on the English devolution question um, from both parties, as I said earlier, despite the big words. And I really don't share that caution. Um, I think this area needs something big and bold. Whether that will happen is another question, but the, the piecemeal, bit by bit, fragmented approach to English devolution, it's not just too slow, it's actually hampering the process itself. Because we're asking questions like, if we devolve this specific power to this specific mayor, will we see an uptick in growth over the next two years? We, we're asking the wrong questions. We need to be looking at English devolution as a system, as part of the constitutional debates that the, the other panellists have been, been talking about. Because that's when we'll see the real benefits of devolution in England. And this comes when local leaders are able to develop long-term strategies for their area based on local needs, based on local specialisms, and then they have the money behind them to deliver that, and they're able to pull all the different policy levers at the same time in the direction of those strategies around health, transport, skills, R&D, welfare, etc. Whether we're actually going to see that, um, uh, something um, more bold from the political parties is difficult to tell, but I think just a few points I want to make about what's needed. First, something needs to be done around funding. I mentioned the the disaster of the small um, funding pots, the competitive funding pots. Either significant tax raising powers need to be devolved in England. I'm not so much in favour of that, but it's it's one option. Or there needs to be a long-term funding formula for, for local government and combined authorities. That's the first one. The second one, geography. Uh, and this goes to the question asked online. The geography of England needs settling, and it needs settling soon. We can't wait a decade or two for certain local areas to decide whether they're part of this region or this region. Um, I'm not saying the centre should sit down and draw the map, not at all, quite the opposite. But they need to twist some arms so that this takes a year or two and not a decade or two. 
Thirdly, capabilities. One of the big concerns about English devolution is you're devolving power to people who haven't got the um, capability to exercise it. I think that point is over-exaggerated, but it does need addressing. We've got a world-class civil service in this country, and that civil service could be supporting the development, should be supporting the development of policy-making and research capacity at the local and regional level. And then the fourth and final point I wanted to make on this is the need to address the accountability question. Part of this You've got low local turnouts, people seem disengaged with local politics. That needs addressing. And in the report I wrote with Mike Kenny for this constitutional review, we look at this issue in particular, among with some of the other points I've mentioned. Uh, and how do, we, how do we resolve that? It's a very difficult question, but looking at local voting, the, vo the local voting system, looking at investment in local media, looking at political education are all important parts of that. And then just to draw this together, uh, I just want to say that all these aspects I've mentioned in the delivery of those benefits of devolution, it requires a, a system level view. You need to look at this as a whole. Um, and if the next government are going to come in um, and do something about this, then I think they need to look at the institutions for delivering this. So one option would be um, having a minister or department for England, a secretary of state for England. Another option would be to gather the metro mayors and local leaders together and give that body a say and a role at the centre. So there's some ideas about how to take this forward, but just to underline a point I've made a few times, this needs a, a big vision. The piecemeal approach to English devolution is, is just not working. Great, thank you. We've got a bit of five minutes left, um, so we'll take some questions if we can keep them brief and responses brief um, <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah, we've got a question at the back there, um, one here, um, and uh, the gentleman there as well. Thanks. Andrea Westall, Foundation for Democracy and Sustainable Development. I just want to ask you a question about whether there's any manifesto commitments that we think might be coming up that actually have implications for the constitution. And the reason I'm, I'm saying that is if you look at Wales, with their devolution settlement, they had a set of principles underneath that which were quasi-constitutional. So they were having to bring in sustainability principles, long-termism within what they did. That then got codified into the Future Generations Act. And we know Lord Byrd's been trying to push something similar through both houses. And I know that Labour might be thinking about that. And the reason for asking it is because most of the new constitutions around the world have all been extending the kind of principles that are brought into how government and democracy works. So whether or not you see some quite potentially profound changes coming in in a different way than perhaps we've been discussing at the moment. Great, thank you. Thanks. Uh, Mark Bannister, University of Lincoln. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I suppose what we've heard today is uh, a set of proposals first up in the first session uh, from the report, and now we've had a, a panel of, of, of why, uh, why these things aren't going to happen, in a way, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the uh, parties. But uh, you, you've all talked about reset, and I wondered um, uh, whether there's uh, a strong case and why it's not being made by the parties and others for a, a constitutional convention that might bring a lot of these things together uh, and that might provide that uh, reset, whereas we're relying on parties, manifestos, uh, and possibly you know, a, a new crisis or something to provide that reset. Thank you. Good question. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Nugent from the Institute for Digital Privacy. Um, 
given that uh, constitutions are the method by which we best make political decisions, how legitimate do you think it is that less than half a percent of the UK population are members of a winning political party? And that less than half a percent of the members of that political party, being generous, are responsible for making the decisions as to what goes into the manifesto. And that a general election typically results in 60 to 70 percent of the population voting against the party that becomes the government. Where is legitimacy to be had there? Great, thank you. Um, three excellent questions there. Um, I'm going to start with you, Kath, on this question about sort of party membership um, and, and manifestos um, and whether that is democratically legitimate. Okay, I'll come to that because I actually want to ask, answer Mark's one because I feel I started <laughs> off with the negativity. I'm talking about the next year, the campaign. I actually think there's a huge opportunity uh, with this election, whoever wins, because uh, if there's a hung parliament, we haven't talked about that yet, we could, uh, but we might affect lunch um, <laughs> but that is going to need some cross-party you know coordination so these issues are going to be up for grabs if there's a majority either way it's a chance for a reset we've been discussing it in the office this could be the first government in I don't know how many years that would be starting office without a sort of crisis or Brexit to resolve for a long time at the moment there isn't a lot of clarity about what any parties might do um, there probably won't be in the manifestos big, bold change, but we know that the public appetite is there. And we know that probably political appetite is there. What I think you could find is if, say, Labour get a majority, um, possibly even if the Conservatives get a majority, there is suddenly, I'm going to use that word again, a reset and an opportunity for some big, bold change. If the economy picks up, could be another opportunity. So I don't think that we should approach it with pessimism. I do actually think it's an opportunity. And I mean, just as a very narrow point, I mentioned earlier Angela Rayner moving away from her brief and the change of the Integrity and Ethics Commission. There's still an opportunity there for Starmer to want to do something big and bold around saying, my government's going to be different. We've given him a blueprint of how he could set up something in the Cabinet Office, encourage something in Parliament, encourage a new body. You know, there's lots of opportunity, I think, uh, to all of this. I just don't think it's going to form the election campaign itself. Um, on parties, I don't have a solution, I'm afraid, uh, for that. It is the current system that we have. Um, this afternoon's session might be your opportunity. I'm looking at Rebecca at the back, who will be chairing <laughs> that, uh, and is very much uh, keen to explore the issues of public participation uh, and how to, to make sure that actually the public do feel more engaged in our political processes as well as um, in you know, the policies that, that get into it and, and in our constitution as well. So I might throw that one forward to this afternoon, uh -huh. if that's okay. Great, thanks. Um, we're nearly out of time, but uh, just to give uh, everyone else uh, a bit of time to respond. Akash, um, there was a question there about sort of different forms of constitutionalism, I suppose, and reforms embedding principles. This idea has become very popular in, in Wales and um, in, there's some interest in it in Scotland as well. Do you think that that's something that's likely to influence what the UK government does? So I suppose we're talking in terms of Labour, most, most probably uh, having, having interest in moving in that kind of direction. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, 
the, the Brown Commission, again, to go back to that, did have some specific ideas about the kind of principles you might seem to seek to entrench in things like solidarity clause, duty co to cooperate between levels of government, subsidiarity principle potentially, to provide a more consistent and yeah, principle-based um, approach to determining the dis distribution of powers, maybe legally um, enforceable socioeconomic rights. You know, that's an idea Brown had a bit of interest in back in distant days when, when he was actually in power and, and, and it's found its way into the commission as well. So, I mean, that's the place I've seen some of those, that, that kind of thinking fleshed out um, in, in recent years in a, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a credible set of ideas, not convinced it's going to be what an incoming government um, is going to prioritise because as, as, as advocated in, in that commission, it would, it would create more restrictions on what a government could do, mm -hmm. open, its, open up government action to, to legal challenge and so on. I think it's just the reality of politics that that's not necessarily what Keir Starmer would, would be keen to, to implement, but there are some interesting ideas there. I'm sure there's, there's advocates within Labour and, and wider kind of centre-left constitutional reform circles. Great, fantastic. Um, I'm afraid that is all we have time for uh, because we're about to, to head down uh, to lunch. Uh, but uh, this will be the start of lots of work that the RFG will be doing on the general election. Um, so expect to see more um, of some of these faces uh, talking about uh, plans uh, for the election and proposals and how to implement them afterwards. Um, Thank you to my excellent panel uh, for a really interesting discussion and thank all of you uh, for listening and for uh, attending this morning session. Um, we're now going to break for lunch, which will be on the first floor landing and in the dining room. We'll be resuming at 1.45 for our next panel, what needs to change in Westminster and Whitehall to make devolution work. But before you all go eat your sandwiches, if you could just join me in thanking the panel. <laughs>